Now I'm joined by Justin Mayha and Scotty Holdison. They are both members of the UAW, the United Auto Workers, and they are members of the UAW's Reform Caucus, Unite All Workers for Democracy. Scotty and Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight. Yeah, thank you for having us on uh, tonight, Jacob. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. Absolutely, absolutely. So can y'all introduce yourselves? Uh, We'll start off with that. Scotty, you know, uh, how long have you been in the union? What do you do? What's your job? And and what got you active? Well, I've been been in the union uh, 32 years. Uh, I'm an electrician at Ford Motor Company, Chicago Assembly Plant. I've been active in the union for, uh, you know, a, a good part of that that time. Uh, you know, I started attending union meetings pretty early on. Uh, I've ran for office. I've been elected as our financial secretary. I've been elected as our vice president. And I have uh, attended uh, as a delegate at the last three constitutional conventions. That's, and, and I'm sorry, could you could you repeat what it is that you do, uh, what, what your job is again? I forgot, uh, or I uh, didn't catch that. Sure, it's, uh, I'm an electrician at the uh, Ford Motor Company Chicago Assembly Plant. Uh, uh, that's you where- that, You had that in common with David then, he's an electrician well. <laughs> Very cool. Justin, what about you? Uh, I work at the General Motors Fairfax Assembly Plant in Kansas City, Kansas. I've been, uh, a UAW member for a little over 10 years now. I work in the trim department uh, at the at the plant. I'm also the guide uh, at our local on the executive board. I was an alternate delegate at the last convention, the 2018 convention, and I am on the ethics advisory committee that uh, the IUAW formed because of the corruption scandal. Um, they randomly picked two people from each region within our union, and I got picked as the alternate alternate rep for Region 4. Okay. So, the, uh, you know, folks, these are definitely people that have been active for a while in their union. And so, you know, Justin and Scotty, can you tell us um, tell us a little bit about, you know, you mentioned that that corruption scandal. Do you see the, the corruption that that has happened in the UAW, uh, do you see that as linked to a lack of democracy and a kind of stiffening of the hierarchy in the UAW? Um, Absolutely. Um, Because if there's no accountability, then this is, to me, this is like inevitable that it was going to happen at some point in time. And within the UAW, uh, a single political party is held control, complete control of our union for over 70 years. It was, uh, they're known as the Administration Caucus, also known as the Ruther Caucus, because Walter Ruther was the one that initially formed uh, the caucus during the factional battles in the early years of the UAW. But since 1947, they've basically had uh, complete control over our union. And so there has been no, I'll say very, very little democracy on the international level because of that. Yeah, democracy, lack of democracy has been uh, one of the keys to uh, uh, you know bringing about the corruption scandal. Uh, but another key to that is a, a cozy relationship that has developed between uh, the international and uh, uh, especially the vice presidents and, and presidents and the uh, auto companies. 
um, you know, that that relationship has gone from uh, one of adversarial uh, relationship to uh, one of cooperation. And they've gotten to cooperate so much that they were, uh, you know, lining the pockets of uh, certain union representatives. Yeah, I think it, it honestly wouldn't surprise me if this was one of y'all that wrote this article. But I read an article in Labor Notes about uh, about the, the, the change of the UAW from seeing the boss as a person to fight to the more cooperative model and seeing an interview with one of uh, with an older UAW member about and and she mentioned I believe it was a woman who mentioned being astonished at seeing their union officials wearing jackets that had the UAW logo right next to GM's logo you know (laughs) like what uh, that that really spoke to her like she, she was just a appalled by it couldn't believe that we were putting our logo right next to theirs you know they're the enemy right that we're fighting them we're not on the same team we're not in the same class and what was it that you think that that made that like how did that happen well that was uh you know back in the uh late 1970s early 1980s the uh auto industry was in in trouble because of uh foreign foreign imports and uh, uh, Chrysler was asking for uh, bailouts uh, from the U.S. government. And as part of that, uh, that bailout, the UAW took concessions. And part of those concessions were uh, joint programs that uh, the UAW and the, uh, the auto companies would administer jointly. Uh, and basically, those have, have evolved, morphed into a... Uh, just a slush fund that uh, they use to uh, pass out goodies. And, uh, you know, there, there's also some important work that go, comes out of the uh, joint funds, like, you know, our benefits, our benefits are jointly administered. Uh, but, you know, in, in the end, uh, those funds were the source of a good portion of the uh, the corruption. And uh, that all started, uh, the cooperative attitude of the UAW started back in the early 1980s and has evolved into what we see today. And the uh, all these joint programs that Scott is talking about also help the administration caucus uh, increase their power within our union because all of a sudden there were a slew of appointed jobs that they could, you know, appoint to people basically to gain their loyalty. Um, and, and that's the only way under our current system, it, it's the only way you can get up to the international level is if you are subservient to the administration caucus. So there's no there's no ideologies like you have Republicans and Democrats in government. There's nothing like that. It's just all corporate ideology. And if you don't follow that line, then you could either lose your appointed job or you would never be appointed in the first place right right how do you see how, how do you see the uh, the corruption and, and the cooperation and the lack of democracy like do you see it do, do you see them as um, phenomena that kind of evolved together or do, do you think that one of them happened first and led to the other I think uh, I think it was in my opinion lack of democracy was the initial um, catalyst for it because you know when Walter Ruther finally got control of the union and they, you know, the administration caucus did everything they could to purge out, you know, any, any dissent essentially, which, you know, Walter Ruther running the UAW is a lot, obviously a lot better than having Gary Jones run the UAW, but it's still a dictatorship and there's still no democracy. And uh, I just, you know, I feel like that without 
accountability, without democracy, it's inevitable that this is going to happen. And and it finally did. But, you know, to some degree, this kind of stuff has been going on for decades, you know, like through the joint programs, the joint funds. And like I tell people all the time, you know, not all corruption is illegal, you know. And that's the thing that I think we want to stress to UAW members is that, okay, it's great that we're getting out these people like Gary Jones and Dennis Williams that were illegally corrupt, basically. But unless something changes in the administration caucus is challenged, we're still going to have uh, corruption of ideology. And how does that corruption of ideology, you know, this, this, um, the cooperation, the, the cooperative mentality with management, how do you feel like that has affected the union's ability to perform? Uh, we just saw workers in Virginia come off of the largest strike in the United States, 2,900 workers at Volvo trucks in, in Virginia. And uh, it does not look like like they were very happy about that, about coming off the picket line. You know, obviously they voted to they voted by a majority to ratify it, but that was after four votes of essentially the same contract, as far as I can tell. How do you feel like, or, or how did the co- how, what was the relationship between the international officers and the rank and file? in that strike? Well, the rank and file uh, in, from that Volvo strike are, are just mad as a, a you know, a, a bunch of hornets right now. Um, you know, the current president of the UAW, Ray Curry, was the main negotiator uh, at that time in the in the Volvo contract. Uh, they voted that contract down after being on strike by 91%. Uh, you don't even a margin contract. You do that because you're trying to protect your rights. Uh, as a union member, you're trying to protect your livelihood. And the UAW was negotiating uh, in what was uh, not the best interest of, of those workers. And they saw it. You know, we the workers feel it on the plant floor. And, uh, you know, when, when the company is allowed to speed up, when they're uh, having, uh, you know, really difficult terms of uh, attendance. You know, I think you don't have a life beyond uh, the factory. Uh, you know, workers get fed up with that. And that's what we saw in the Volvo strike uh, is that they were fed up with it. They were willing to go back out on strike to uh, try and demand better terms under, under their contract. And the UAW wasn't having any of it. Uh, by the UAW, I mean the international union. Ray Curry wasn't having any any of it. Uh, and basically, they imposed that contract on them by uh, starving them out. And, uh, you know, one of the problems is that people would donate to their strike fund and it would disappear into the uh, the coffers of the International Union. Mm, wow. So those are part of the things that, uh, you know, really upset workers. And uh, I, that's some of the things that we hope to be able to uh, straighten out uh, if we can get democracy in the UAW, get a uh, uh, you know, a credible uh, adversary to the administration caucus. Yeah, well, th- that's how, what are the democratic processes like in the UAW right now? Like, how do you elect your bargaining committees? How, 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 how does that happen? How do you elect your international president? How, like, just lay out kind of the democratic framework of the UAW, if you could, for us. Yeah, so everything on the local level is ba- is one member, one vote. You know, it's popular vote. Um, but when you get to the international executive board positions, they're elected by delegates. So every local union 
sends delegates that we vote on to the convention. And then those officers, those delegates vote for who's going to be on the international executive board. So there's, you know, in our opinion, there's a buffer between the rank and file and the international leadership. And, you know, the, the administration caucus has various ways at conventions for which they can get the votes they want. And they do. Gary Jones was elected with 99.2% of the vote in 2018 at that convention. And I always feel like in no real democracy does anybody win with 99.2% of the vote. But uh, everything is locally is very democratic. And that's why it's so odd that when we get to the international, it's not nearly as democratic. So locally, it's very democratic. Does that extend to the bargaining committees? Like our bar- uh, the bargaining committee at Volvo, for instance, like was that elected from rank and file uh, folks in the plant? Yes, it was. Uh, it was elected by rank and file folks in the plant. But when they go to the bargaining table, uh, they get overruled by uh, the international on uh just about every item that they try and bargain. Uh, so, you know, alongside the bargaining committee is the international, well, at the time, uh, Secretary Treasurer Ray Curry. And, uh, you know, he, he overruled what the, uh, the members of that local wanted. And, uh, you know, they were able to clearly make their demands known to the, uh, the local leadership who is probably not going to survive the next election because of what the international did. Um, and I, I can tell you firsthand, uh, the elections at the uh, Constitutional Convention are, uh, you know, very intimidating uh, if you're uh, not voting for the way the, the administration caucus wants you to vote. Uh, so, for instance, uh, when uh, I went up to cast a vote for uh, Gary Walkowitz for president of the UAW, uh, I had to approach the, the microphone. My my face was on five large screen uh, Megatron type, uh, the front and middle of the uh, convention hall. Uh, I had to announce my name, my local number, and who I was casting my vote for. And when that happened, all the staff and all the administration caucus delegates uh, erupted in booze and, and were shouting me down. Uh, you know, it's no way to uh, conduct an elect an election. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I, when I would uh, rise to uh, make a point, because they, they knew that I was, you know, kind of challenging the, the status quo, uh, you know, they, the regional directors had passed out these noisemakers. So they, they would, you know, make their clickers or these uh, plastic bats that they'd pound together to uh, try and drown out your voice, uh, actually drown out your voice. Wow. And, you know, that's, that's just no way to conduct a uh, uh, a democratic process. Yeah, absolutely not. I, I, I couldn't imagine having to deal with that. That would be, um, the, <laughs> I mean, that would just, that would fly all over me. Uh, so, you know, those are kind of the, the, the situation as it is, right? We've got a, a fairly democratic process at the local level that's become obscured and, and there are buffers placed in it and there are incentives placed in it uh, when you start going to the regional international levels. And sometimes where the local conflicts with the international interests, perhaps we could say, uh, they can be overruled, like like what happened in the Volvo strike. What is it that the UAWD is proposing? What, so, you know, what is the path forward? Well, the uh, UAW agreed to a consent decree with the U.S. government. And in that consent decree, uh, there was uh, a clause in there that said, they would have a referendum vote of the entire UAW to decide whether to continue with this corrupt uh, convention system that uh, has led to this corruption, 
or switch to a one member, one vote uh, system where every member uh, of the UAW gets a, a voice in who they elect to the, the highest positions in our union. And, uh, you know, we are, you know, we were advocating for this uh, before the consent decree uh, even uh, was agreed to. Uh, about uh, a year and a half ago, we, we launched a, a special convention where we could change the Constitution for one member, one vote. Now, uh, you know, it was definitely an uphill climb and it was, uh, you know, no guarantee that we would win even if we did get to that convention. But, uh, you know, we've been advocating uh, for a long time uh, for direct democracy in the UAW. Uh, but now we have an opportunity in front of us, uh, probably a once in a lifetime opportunity to uh, bring about uh, changes that can really uh, transform our union into uh, one that represents the interests of its members. So what happens, let's say you get the one member, one vote referendum, it passes, everybody, you know, you, it wins with a majority and you elect people um, to the international office uh, in a one member, one vote fashion. Uh, you know, what kind of things are, uh, do you expect to follow that? Like, do y'all have like a plan after that happens? happens like okay these are some other processes that we want to put in place maybe some railroads to uh keep you know keep caucus control from solidifying or um are, are there any specific policies that y'all are pushing uh, at the international level or, or bargaining planks you know wh what happens after that well i mean that that's not a given in the first place so we right. have to uh <laughs> We have to come up with some uh, fair election rules uh, to uh, make a level playing field. Um, but after that, uh, let's say, you know, UAWD uh, sweeps the, the election in, in the next uh, next election. Uh, what we would be uh, looking for is, first of all, to build more transparency into our union so that the membership can see uh exactly from month to month how their their money is being spent how decisions are made uh we'd also like to see bargaining that involves members uh we have that in some sectors of the uaw uh where especially higher ed uh locals where they have open bargaining sessions and uh you know members can come up come in and give testimony about how uh you know their life is under this contract and and how different it could be if if they can get the uh contract uh changes so you know those are some of the things that that i personally envision uh our caucus has a platform uh you know and and on in that platform it calls for transparency uh it calls for uh reforming uh how we uh set aside our strike fund money uh because part of the part of the money that was spent was dues and and there's been hundreds of millions of dollars transferred out of our fund uh and uh so you know those are some of the reforms that we hope will uh try to uh bring our, our members together uh but we we definitely have to take a more adversarial approach with the uh with the companies and another Another point is these companies are global, and we think that that our union has been uh, had a lack of imagination when it comes to uh, organizing on a global scale. Uh, so you know we we need to work together with our brothers and sisters abroad that uh, are struggling with the same companies trying to eke out a living. Uh, you know, we can't be in co competition with one another. We have to try and help bring up the standard of living for every uh, person in that sector, for, for every GM worker, uh, every Ford worker, every 
worker in uh, Caterpillar, for instance, uh, across the globe. You know, we have to start strategizing together uh, because all the companies are doing whipsawing across. Right. Yeah. I mean, the companies aren't, definitely aren't limiting their advocacy and they're pushing for, uh, you know, uh, pushing for concessions to one country. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, you know, Justin, how, how uh, what are y'all doing to make this happen? What are some of the things that ha- that, that the UAWD is, is doing in this campaign for the one member, one vote and uh, some of the subsequent things? Like, what does the campaign look like? Uh, so we have uh, we've hired a full-time organizer. She used to be uh, a member of the local uh, Harvard local in the UAW, and she, now she's our full-time organizer. And uh, because this is like a big difference between what happened with the Teamsters and what happened with us. So when the Teamsters, the government mandated one member, one vote to them. Like it was just like you guys are, are doing one member, one vote. In our situation, the government said, we're going to give you the choice, which I understand how that sounds good. Like, (laughs) you know, you're giving the membership the choice. But essentially what it did is made this ragtag team of UAW members that we are have to organize a national campaign to try to reach as many UAW members as possible um, to uh, try to, you know, let them know why one member, one vote uh, would be so beneficial to our union. So, We've basically just been trying to get into as many plants as possible, as many workplaces as possible in the UAW and just reach workers and try to, uh, you know, listen to what their concerns are, um, how they feel about one member, one vote in the delegate system. Uh, and, you know, a big problem, at least in auto, because me and Scott are both in auto, is like there's a lot of apathy uh, amongst the membership because they've been beaten down with this corporate ideology for decades. So I think the biggest struggle is to try to re-engage a lot of workers because a lot of UAW members don't believe that uh, real positive change is even possible. You and I are friends on Facebook, and, and you know, you, you mentioned that um, some of the things that people are saying in the campaign against the one member, one vote uh, is pretty wild. And it's difficult for me to even actually envision um, what a union campaign against extended democracy looks so like, like, how do you, like how, how do you present that to your members like no we think that uh you know you're too dumb to elect me your international president like you know you, you need a buffer like what are they even saying that's essentially the talking point is is what you just said we don't think the membership is smart enough to know what's best for them and you know our position is that you know more democracy is great for the union it'll engage a lot more members because they'll know they have a direct uh, you know, impact on who our international executive board officers are. Um, but, but yeah, there's been some very wild things that were, have been said about one member, one vote. And one of them was from our former president of the UAW, Rory Gamble, that he said that if we have one member, one vote, there would be no minorities uh, and there would be an all-male leadership team at the international executive board. And it's like, how do they come... How, like, how how did they come to that conclusion? It's like, we feel like they're just saying a lot of stuff and hoping that the membership doesn't think about what they're saying any more than just like the surface, you know, because to me, that's kind of like saying you think that the membership is racist, so they won't vote in minorities, which I don't believe that is true in any way. They won't vote in women. I don't believe that. 
You know, it's basically a lack of trust in the rank and file is that's their argument for why they don't want one member, one vote. Yeah, well, and there was somebody in your comment section, I don't remember who it, it, who it was, and you don't have to say, but he said something about democracy got us Trump, and I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> I'm not saying that that's how I would frame it, actually. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was a lack of democracy that got us Trump. Uh, you know, he, he lost the election, uh, the, uh, you know, the number of votes, you know, the popular vote, but uh, one in the electoral college, kind of like a delegate system. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's that's uh, uh, how we got Trump. But, uh, you know, I'd like to touch just for a minute, if you if you don't mind, Jacob, uh, on our organizing efforts. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's definitely been challenging uh, organizing during a pandemic. And right now, the uh, auto companies are, are uh, you know, struggling with their supply chain. So there's been a lot of downtime. Uh, Justin knows firsthand he's been laid off most of the year uh, because of these chip shortages. Uh, so it's, it's really been a struggle trying to uh, to organize. But, you know, we've been dedicated to this uh, uh, organizing and raising awareness for one member, one vote. Uh, the International Union is doing everything they can to not uh, let the membership know about it. Um, so it, it's really up to us to uh, to get the word out, um, even during these challenging times. Uh, so to do that, we've uh, we've been flyering. We had a week of action in May where we flyered uh, about 10 different locals uh, and uh, we some fundraising drives. Uh, we had a May Day match that, uh, you know, netted us about $40,000 uh, towards our organizing efforts. And every dollar that gets donated to us uh, is donated towards our organizing efforts. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have a donor box. Uh, I'll send you the, the link for the donor box. Uh, if you can, you know, somehow share that with, uh, with your audience, that would be great. Um, but, you know, by having a full-time organizer, we've been able to, uh, you know, schedule uh, phone banks and text banks and uh, organizing meetings uh, and, you know, all of that stuff uh, takes resources and, and, uh, you know, we could, uh, use some help from your audience if, if, uh, they, uh, would be willing to, uh, help us out with, uh, you know, a small monthly donation or something. Yes. yes. We'll definitely put that in the podcast description and in the description of the YouTube video after we end, after we end the stream. Um, Thank you. Absolutely. So, you know, what would you say to like, we need to get new people in there, but there's no use in fighting. We're not going to win. I'm just going to turn in my union card and what happens happens. Like what, what do you say to people like that? Well, you know, uh, fighting uh, for a, uh, your contract is, is kind of similar to, uh, you know, fighting in uh, the boxing ring. Uh, if you're going to, uh, you know, just walk in off the street and go jump in the ring with, with a heavyweight contender, uh, you're going to get beat to hell. Uh, it takes a lot of training. It takes a lot of education uh, to learn how to uh, fight back. Uh, so, you know, that's going to be part of our program is, is uh, you know, bringing education local level and making sure that members are getting engaged in the education opportunities uh, so that we can, uh, you know, get the members prepared. Because right now uh, we have an international union that, uh, when they go on strike, they go on strike. Uh, they take the members on strike against the members uh, to soften them up so they can uh, shove a concession contract like they did at Volvo uh, down their 
their throats. A uh, very similar thing happened with GM uh, in 2019. Justin can tell you all about that. Um, you know, the, the strike, uh, you know, it was 40 some days and, and they were, uh, you know, they were hoping to end the, the hated uh, tiered contracts uh, and instead they made them worse. Uh, uh, you know, the, the temporary workers, uh, uh, you said that you are on a, uh, a probationary period for four years. Yeah, well, the... Um, it's the, very similar in auto land, a temporary worker uh, for uh, two or three years. And, uh, you know, then you start your progression in the tier. Right, right. Yeah, my probationary period is actually two years, but I was an intern for two years before that. So it more or less turned into a four-year probationary period. Um, but it, that, that's going to be coming to an end in like three weeks. So I'm I'm looking forward to that wrapping up. But yeah, Justin, talk to us about that, the, the GM strike. I, I, um, I had almost forgotten about that. And, and if if you could talk to us about that for just a bit, I'd, I'd be really interested. That was actually the first picket line that I was ever able to walk on. Um, and so that was, you know, I, I was pretty, pretty new, right? I was, uh, <laughs> I didn't know much about the internal stuff that was happening. What, can you explain to me, like, what Scotty was saying about the union taking you out on strike to soften you up so that you accept the contract? Like, what are the mechanics? Like, what does that mean? Um, yeah, so the contract that we agreed to after the six weeks out on strike, I mean, I feel like that was a contract normally that they would have offered us before we even went out on strike. Um, but I, I think that they, I think the international knew that given the corruption scandal and how angry, you know, workers are in general in the auto plants, that uh, that wasn't going to fly, like business as usual wasn't going to fly. So, uh, yeah, they essentially... In my opinion, they they sent us out on strike to to like Scott said to weaken us up, basically to get us to wherever we don't have as much money. Uh, I mean, if you're out on the on the picket lines, you know when we first went out on the picket lines, it was like a party every day, you know. But after you get three or four weeks, I mean, morale starts dropping, and much like the Volvo strike, um, the international. That's another thing I would say that I would imagine would be in our program. The international provides so little help to these to these locals. It's like you get the 275 a week after you've been out for a week already. Um, but then I think they send you like they'll send you like a little care package, like a water and that kind of stuff. But other than that, I mean, what is there that they do like, you know, to, to help workers like at Volvo get to the strike? Um, another thing about our 2019 strike was that the demands of our union, the demands were very vague. And it's like no one really knew what they meant when they say affordable health care. Well, what does that mean? What is afford? You know, we're fighting for affordable health care because, you know, that is one thing that we do have as, uh, you know, GM UAW workers is we have very good health insurance. And there were rumors about GM wanted to cut those benefits, you know, but it you know, I'd have to look back on what exactly, you know, we had these signs people were holding up and it had our demands. And it was like, good paying job, uh, you know, good health benefits or whatever it was. And it's like, but what we didn't really know what we were out there for because the IUAW doesn't, you know, I think they intentionally kept that vague. But, you know, after six weeks on strike, I mean, there were a lot of people we had never been on a strike before. So by the time six weeks comes around, I pretty much knew it was going to pass because, there are people with families, you know, and it's just it really took its toll financially on people. So that's, you know, I think that that's what, you know, Scott's talking about when he says uh, softening up the membership. And I also I believe I've read something about the 1970 strike at GM, the UAW strike, that that was kind of the same thing, that it was like, let them blow off some steam, let the workers blow off some steam. And then, 
you know, they'll come back to work and they'll be they'll be uh, happy to be back in there. And I, I feel like a similar dynamic played out in 2019. What could the union have done differently to support the workers more? Um, I, I was actually at the convention where, you know, they talked about raising the strike pay, you know, like we have. Scott could probably tell you better than me, but we have like around $800 million in our strike fund. And, you know, uh, Scott could also tell you this better uh, than I could, but the amount of money that we spend on strikes is real is very small in relation to the amount of money that we have for strikes. And I think a big thing we could do is really increase the amount of money that we are giving out to workers when when they're on strike. I mean, 275 bucks, you know, like for a, for someone in the year 2021 is just right. not going to do anything. What about, uh, and I think, do they have, does the, I know that the mine workers, for instance, provide health care uh, to their members while they're on strike. Does the UIW do that? Yes. Okay. Yes. And, and uh, you know, one, one big improvement would be to let the members know why they're on strike. Let them, give them some specific specific things that, yeah, this is what we're fighting for. This is what the company is saying. They, they're they not wanting to give us at the bargaining table, but we're fighting for it. You're fighting for it because it's really the people on the picket lines that are fighting for it. And, you know, it was through strikes that we got things like uh, improvements to our cost of living allowance, which was given away by this caucus, uh, by the administration caucus, uh, pensions uh, that that came about from a strike. You know, those those weren't just gifts from the company. We got pensions because our forefathers and foremothers uh, walked the picket lines and demanded, uh, uh, you know, you know, to to be compensated in their golden years. You know, too too old to work, too young to die. Uh, but you know, we we need something to live on. Uh, and those were negotiated away by this administration caucus. Uh, so, you know, the, the thing that if you're going to win a strike, the, the people that are actually conducting the strike, the workers that are on the picket line, they need to know what they're fighting for. And, and not some just vague, uh, well, we're doing the best we can, you know, uh, and, and uh, who are they doing the best they could for is, is my question. Well, y'all, I think that, that that's very informative, um, and and I think that this I, I love to, that's why I like to talk so much to other people um, because I you know even I mentioned that 2019 was the first time that I was actually able to be on a picket line. You know, this isn't something that I've been doing a very long time, and so I like to be able to learn from folks who have more experience than myself. And I, I feel like that's um, you know y'all are doing good work. I more power to you, um, and, and you know hopefully y'all are able to win that referendum. Hopefully, y'all are able to sweep the elections after that. Uh, do y'all have anything that you want to leave us with? Uh, yeah, I'd just like to say that, uh, you know, we have an opportunity in the UAW, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, to bring our union back. Uh, you know, at, at its height, the, the UAW had one and a half million members. We're down to 400,000 members. We have more retirees than we have active members. Uh, and, you know, that is, uh, you know, because of the policies uh, of cooperation with the companies. They've cooperated us right out of our jobs. Uh, we saw in uh, the last GM contract, the plant closings were just uh, horrendous. You know, people people were fighting to keep their plants open and they negotiated that away. Uh, you know, they wouldn't even talk about it at the bargaining convention. I tried to bring that up and, and they ruled me out of order for wanting to talk about keeping plants open. Uh, so it, I mean, the handwriting was on the wall then. And that's what I'd like to leave you with.
And then just uh, real quick, I would say, you know, to, you know, what Scott was saying that uh, whatever the outcome is of this referendum, you know, it's historic in our union's history and will be remembered in our union's history. No different than, you know, the 1970 strike, you know, Walter Ruther, the sit down strikes. I mean, this is going to be another pivotal moment in our union's history. And, uh, you know, like I said, what no matter if we win it or we lose it. Uh, but if even if we lose, UAWD is going to keep going, we're going to keep organizing and reaching out to as many UAW members as we can until we can finally turn this thing around. Hopefully it's a pivot in the right direction. Justin, uh, Scotty, thank you all so much for taking the time to talk to us tonight. We, we really appreciate it. And uh, that's going to be about it for us tonight. Thanks everybody for tuning in. You'll be able to hear this on the podcast in the next couple of days. We'll hopefully get some of the tech difficulties uh, fixed up in post. Uh, again, thank you so much for your time. If you want to support the show, you can buy one of two hats on our website, thevalleylaborreport.org, or you can support us on patreon.com slash the valley labor report all power to the working class thanks folks